0: Världens bästa Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson Hoj, här kommer Karlsson Karlsson, Carlsson. Ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson Vill jag så bra som mig Carlsson, Carlson, Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores Karlsson, Karlsson yeah! Världens bästa Carlsson, Vackra Thank you everybody for tuning into to another episode of the keeping carlson fantasy hockey podcast the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world hosted by two guys who own eric carlson in their keeper pools i'm your host elon Dubrowski, and joining me is my co-host the fantasy hockey robot the architect of ad drops brian Com.
1: hello elon hello everybody we have another great summer episode all cooked up for you We're going to slave over a hot stove to get it out. So, uh, Elon, who are we starting with first? We need to get through this. I'm literally sweating during this podcast.
0: All right, Brian is going to make all of you listeners feel good about your lives because he is (laughs) apparently in a 50-degree Celsius room and wants the show to be over already. But I'm sorry, Brian, to have to tell you this, but I've got a big slate of fantasy hockey questions to ask you,
1: and we're very excited. Yes, yes, no, yes. 55 points, second power play unit. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time.
0: There it is. Yeah, so last week we did a show where we covered a bunch of the free agents ads and the trades and all the big off-season moves that were made. But we barely even made a dent, right? So we still have so many more to cover. So we're going to do round two today. Normally we wait two weeks between each episode during the summer because there's not that much to talk about but here we couldn't wait we had so much to get to i'm very excited to hear from you so before we get to that of course let's mention that we're presented by dauberhockey.com it's the number one fantasy hockey website out there in the world they've been covering all of these trades and offseason moves ranking them seeing who won the trade who didn't which players benefit which players don't plus they've got all their tools if you're going to get ready for your draft the dauber guide is going to be coming out August 1st, so it's soon. So you can already start prepping. And also you can start prepping by listening to the show, which
1: you're doing. So Brian, why don't we get started? Wait, hang on, Elon, hang on. We, we can't begin. We talked about Dauber's Guide. We also maybe should just quickly mention before our show starts, if you haven't heard, we are kickstarting the world's first audio fantasy hockey guide. You might've heard us talk about it before. And if you want to hear us talk about it more, you can just head on over to keepingcarlson.com slash guide. Then there's a video you can watch of us where we talk more about what you'll get for it. It's going to be more than 20 plus hours of content, but it only happens if it gets kickstarted, which means we need to sell about 150 advanced copies. If you want one of them to help make this project happen, head on over to keepingcarlson.com slash Yeah,
0: check it out. I'm very excited to sit down for a week and talk about every single fantasy relevant player in the NHL. If you want to hear us do it, check it out. Get in on the Kickstarter. This might be one of our last shows where we're going to talk about it. So if you're waiting to the last minute, this is the last minute because I need to book off work and I need to give advance notice. So sign up at keepingcarlsoncom slash guide. 15 bucks Canadian. It's nothing. If you're American, it's like, what, a cup of coffee, two cups of coffee. All right, let's get started here. Brian, I want to start in Vegas okay your favorite place to go all season long anytime I would ask you about these Vegas players you would say nah, pass well, I don't want to talk about them anymore too hard to predict but now it's a summertime fresh start so let's take a look at next year's Vegas Golden Knights because they had a lot of churn over the past few weeks a lot of turnover first of all they lost two of their most common second liners in david perron going to st louis and james neal going to calgary but they gained a really solid two-way center in paul stasny let's dig in to the golden knights and the fantasy impact from losing these two big pieces and then gaining a big piece in stasny so paul stasny he was having his typical paul stasny year over in st louis before things went wonky he put up 40 points in 63 games on the blues a 52 point pace basically what we expect from stasny every year while he was there right 50 to 55. Five points sometimes he'll get you some power play sometimes he won't but then he got traded to St. Louis at the end of the year he was playing with Ehlers and Line A and he got a bit better he produced 13 points in 19 games for a 56 point pace now he goes to Vegas where guys like David Perron can go from being a barely fantasy relevant player to a point per game guy so can the magic happen for Paul Stasny can he do the same and I guess the first question is whether or not we should expect Stasny to bump William Carlson as a top line center to play with Marshall and Riley Smith if that happens, I feel like that would definitely make us expect Paul Sazny to be at least as high as we would have thought he would be if he had stayed in Winnipeg. But maybe he won't. And if he doesn't, I don't know. All of a sudden, the second line, it's not looking so good for him because he doesn't have Perron. He doesn't have James Neal. I guess he'd be playing with maybe Tatar or Alex Tuck. Maybe Hala could switch to the wing. Cody Glass could come up. I don't know. It doesn't seem great. So, Brian, if stasny doesn't get on line one or maybe you could let us know if you think he's going to get on line one or if he's going to be centering the second line and either way what do you think his production is going to be as a member of the vegas gold knights i think one thing we could agree on is probably gonna be on that top power play right because alex tuck was getting time last year and i feel like they didn't sign paul stasny to be on the second unit with alex tuck on the top one
1: okay let's go back and just say what line is is paul stasny going to play on is he going to be on line one? I expect William Carlson is going to begin the year in his spot and what became one of last year's most exciting and productive lines. But Stasny provides an excellent contingency plan should some likely unsustainable success, uh, excuse me, the magical chemistry of that Vegas top line be absent in the opening quarter of the next year. But let's say line one holds. Let's say William Carlson and Jonathan Marcheseau stay up on the top line with Riley Smith too. Uh, You're right, Elon, things don't look so lovely for Paul Stasny anywhere outside of line one. And now I get to give my usual line on Paul Stasny, which is that he's a fantastic player. Remember, not last season, but the first time around when Nathan McKinnon and Gabriel Landeskog had their breakout seasons and then went quiet. Those ups and downs, them getting hot, then going quiet, uh, that coincided with Paul Stasny being on and then leaving their line. I'm not saying it's all him. The Avalanche had a host of all other kinds of problems, but I feel like maybe a factor. Stasny has also produced well in the past with guys like Alex Steen, David Perron, Patrick Liney. Nick Ehlers, Tarasenko, Schwartz, even Troy Brower at times. So Stasny's often been important. He's been able to be productive, but also often has had better company on his line than the likes of the guys you mentioned, say Alex Tuck and Thomas Tatar. So what Stasny is going to have to do is he's going to have to anchor Vegas' second line. And while he's proven that he can support young blue chip talent as an anchor of a line in the past, uh, Stasny has yet to be in a situation when he's playing with guys who aren't really top sixers by your conventional definition. And here's, of course, the mandatory caveat that Vegas spent a whole year last season defying convention. Just going to put that out there, not saying I believe they're sure to do it again next year or that they won't do it again next year. We just have to, it's like a little warning label anytime we talk about Vegas. But for Stasny, at least we can hope for a top power play role to go along with whatever, even strength duties, he ends up being assigned. So with that uncertainty, of who he's going to play with, and if there will be really anyone of reasonable quality for him to hang with at even strength, I think 55 points is a fair projection for him, right around where he's been in other situations, where he's been asked to do yeoman's work in a middle six. I kind of see Stasny as getting like a Ryan Nugent Hopkins-like projection for this year, except for the fact that Nugent Hopkins might be playing with McDavid.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, not for me. I'm going to be overshooting on my projection for Ryan Eugene Hopkins. He's going to be on the cover of our audio guide that we released because I'm actually really high on him. And let's not switch too far to Edmonton. But RNH ended last season playing on line one and power play one with McDavid. He put up like an amazing pace for the last couple months of the season. I see potential 65 point possibilities for Ryan Nugent Hopkins he's my maybe sleeper of the year so far but Brian okay we're on Vegas we're talking about Stasny and I agree with you there I think 55 points is pretty fair unless of course he bumps William Carlson from the top line but like you say that's probably pretty unlikely considering that was one of the best lines in the league maybe like if some regression happens and all of a sudden the top line isn't producing then they're like oh we gotta shake things up and Stasny gets there even still I don't know 55 that seems reasonable I wouldn't be going too high on Paul Stasny so now let's play a game of helped hurt or unaffected no one sent us in Brian a better name for this segment that <laughs> we introduced last week so it's gonna be another week of huh where i ask you if a player was helped Hurt or unaffected by the changes made to their team. So I'm going to give you a few Vegas players. I'm curious to know if you think they're going to do better this year or next year after all of the changes. I want to start with Eric Halla. Eric holla perfect player for this segment. Maybe it's named even after him because he's a player who I think is gonna. You're going to say he was hurt a lot. I have a feeling because he lost two of his most common line mates in Peron and James Neal. He had such a great year last year. 55 points in 76 games. That's a 59 point pace for Eric Halla. Like who's he? He makes Jonathan Marchessault so sound like he was a you know a brand name going into the season like Eric Holla was a nobody and there you go 55 points in 76 games 60 point pace like I said 59 whatever he loses both of those line mates he gains Paul Stasny I guess maybe though Holla was the center of that second line so Holla could get bumped all the way down to the third line is he even going to be fantasy
1: relevant next year I kind of don't even want to draft him. Ja Rule's favorite player Eric Holla I think uh, that credit belongs to listener Michael. Patron Michael, thank you. Uh, Eric Halla never even really had a sniff of a power play role before last year. And then as a Golden Knight, Halla took full advantage of the new opportunity to play with James Neal and David Perron with the man advantage on unit, not quite unit two, unit 1.5 of the Golden Knights power play. And Halla scored 18 power play points in all, which is absolutely the entire difference between last year having been a standout year for Haula or totally pedestrian. Now, the thing is, I'm just not sure, like Stasny, who's left for him to play with once the first unit is filled up. Stasny has the problem prominent even strength. Haula on the power play. Same candidates that we mentioned in the Stasny bit. Alex Tuck, Thomas Tatar, Cody Glass. Are those the guys Hala has to make do with on the second unit? I mean, David Perron and James Neal were not world-beating superstars, but they were still probably better than those guys. I'm hey, Brian, also... David Perron, I know you forgot
0: about it when we went into last week's episode. Perron was a point-per-game guy last year, pretty much. He was playing like a world-beating superstar.
1: Yeah, totally. Okay, so he doesn't have point-per-game David Perron. I'm also... Uh, not sure that Eric Halla, regardless of line mates, can continue scoring quite the way he did last year on the power play. With the main advantage, get this, Eric Halla scored 12 times on 26 shots. That's a 46% conversion rate on the power play, and even the best power play shooters do not get their shooting percentages that high, or even half that high, on a regular basis. And then, Elon, you say that Holla uh, maybe gets to play with Stasny at even strength, but uh, Haula is a center, right? I know I know he's listed as having wing eligibility on some platforms, but assume that he's the third line center. At least that's what I'm assuming to start the season. So he gets bumped down a line at even strength. So to sum up, you've got Haula losing key power play line mates, seeing likely goal scoring regression, and getting bumped to line three at even strength. And I'm pretty cool to him next year. And, and just to like extend the power play point, he might not even get as much power play time because there might be a bigger, at least it looks like there's going to be a bigger gulf between the top unit and the second unit. Instead of seeing like a 51-49 split, could very well be like a 60-40 split for starters. So to go way back and answer your, huh? I would have been cool to Haula anyway, but Stasny's arrival in Vegas certainly hurts him. I will say 50 points would be a successful year for Eric Haula, and he only is going to get there if he manages, say, 10 power play points which you can tell I'm not even that optimistic about.
0: Yeah, I think that's reasonable. He might be one of the most hurt players in all the league due to the off-season changes, due to him losing his two great line mates and getting bumped down the depth chart. So not a great off-season for Eric Halla. How about Alex Tuck now? We've talked about him and So Now let's actually talk about these guys and see if they have any fantasy value in your opinion. Though, of course, we did take a bit of a licking last year disregarding Vegas guys left and right. So we'll see if we have anything nice to say about any of these players. Like Alex Tuck, by the way, we haven't mentioned Marcia So and Riley Smith and William Carlson because we're we're confident in them, at least. But Alex Tuck, he spent most of the year in the bottom six, but he did get a bunch of runs at the top power play. He ended the season with 37 points in 78 games, so he wasn't really fantasy relevant, maybe in very short stretches. Now he's probably, like I said, going to be bumped from the top power play for Paul Stasny, so I can't imagine you're not going to say that he's also hurt by this change.
1: Stasny's arrival in Vegas Potentially helps Alex Tuck by offering him a fantastic sentiment to play with. But Stasny, of course, hurts Tuck by potentially taking his sometimes power play one spot away. So you can call those two things a wash. As for Tuck's bigger picture, notwithstanding Stasny joining the lineup, like, is this guy going to get better or worse? What's going to happen with him? The thing with Tuck is that he looked so fantastic in the playoffs and had similar flashes through the regular season where he suddenly looks like a skilled player who could go through anyone. And that's why I I feel like he seems like a reasonably skilled guy when given the opportunity. And playing with at even strength might be an opportunity for him to take advantage of. Also remember that Tuck was a rookie last year, even though his five o'clock shadow makes him look like he's in his early thirties. He enters this season at 22 years old. So there's hope for a little bit of natural improvement as well. Getting more uh, water behind his ears, getting his feet wetter. One of those will work. Uh, I'd say 40 points is a good floor for Alex Tuck which I know is just like on the fringe of fantasy relevance but he has a chance to take it up to 50 and have some runs of relevance if he and Stasny do click on the second line
0: wow you know Brian this is a rare case where I think I'm more conservative than you I wouldn't say a floor of 40 I feel like 40 would be pretty decent and I would say a floor of like 35 but i guess we'll see i guess i'm not too excited about him being on the second line with paul stasny and this next guy thomas tatar if he even makes it there thomas tatar is someone who is like a real brain scratcher because vegas traded so much for him they traded a first a second and a third round pick to get thomas tatar just to then scratch him during their amazing playoff run last year so now we go to next year they still have tatar and they are paying him some money and i would imagine they're going to try to play him and he used to be good right we used to talk about him on keeping carlson as someone that you really liked i remember because he was scoring so many goals with not that much ice time we thought oh with a bit more ice time who knows the sky's the limit he had 29 goals and 56 points with the red wings but that was four seasons ago and it's been all downhill from there last year he ended with a career low 34 points in 82 games and like i told you he got scratched in games with vegas in the 20 games he did play for vegas he only got six points so even worse than his season pace that said, like I said, they did pay money for Tatar. I feel like they're going to give him a chance in a scoring role, at least for a little bit, though. I don't know how long it'll last. Like, do you think there's anything left in Tatar? I can't imagine you'll say to draft him. Like, but is, would he at
1: least be on your watch list going into next season? Well, I know you would probably prefer him to Alex Tuck. Perhaps I would too. When you brought up the point about, well, this is how much Vegas paid to get him, so you think they'd want to use him. Of course, no hockey team should be making personnel decisions based on things like what salary they pay him or acquisition costs, Although I suppose it does offer some window into how Vegas might value Tatar or how any team might value a player within their organization. Uh, that said, what to do with Thomas Tatar? They paid the cost. They have the guy he turns twenty eight in December, but if you showed me his numbers blind, I would actually guess that Tatar is a thirty three or thirty four year old going by the arc of rise and decline in his numbers, although there's never really been a rise. Tatar started at what marks the top of his game in classic red wing style by being a rookie at the age of twenty three being a sophomore at the age of twenty four but Tatar' has been falling steadily in the three years since then. So Tatar does seem capable of 50 points in the right situation. He came into the NHL doing it, but is this going to be the right situation? Maybe? Like Vegas could really use an offensively inclined player in their top six, but then again, you could have said the same thing about Detroit when they had Tatar. And we also saw what Vegas did with Vadim Shibashov, who uh, I essentially said the same thing, that Vegas sure could really use an offensively inclined player in their top six. And then he... Did not play very long for the Golden Knights. So for Tatar, look, I'm going to try and be optimistic here. I'm going to hope for 50 if this does turn out to be the right situation for him. But if Tatar keeps seeing fewer than 14 minutes a night with regular scratches, no power play role, then obviously forget it. I don't think he's someone you need to jump on in your drafts. I feel like you can let him be, add him to your watch list right when your draft ends, And then keep an eye on his deployment and see if he is being given an opportunity to play an offensive role.
0: Yeah. 50 point season for Thomas Tatar would definitely be an out there projection at this point, but who knows all the Vegas players did it last year though. Not Thomas Tatar. Okay. Another player I want to ask you about is Colin Miller, who Vegas just signed last week to a four year, $15.5 million deal. Miller was a solid fantasy option last year. He passed the 40 point threshold. He had 41 points in 82 games. And I feel like we always say for a defenseman, if he can get 40 points, he's a fantasy relevant guy in most formats. We go to next year. One thing I'd be concerned about about Colin Miller is what you just said earlier in the show, that if there's a bigger gulf between the top power play and the second power play in terms of quality, they might play the top power play more. And Miller was on that second unit. Shea Theodore got most of the top power play time. So do we, with all of this expect Colin Miller to be able to put together another 40 point season next year, or do you think he overperformed and it's unlikely he'll be able to do it again?
1: I like Colin Miller to. I'm going to say he's going to hold steady right around 40 points. And just as an aside, The Miller signing very much seemed like Vegas signaling that they'd had enough already with the negotiating with and waiting on Pierre Dorian re any potential Eric Carlson deal. So uh, they're moving on, or at least that's what it looks like to me. And it gave me some personal relief, but I know this is already way too much talking about the trade or potential trade Elon than you would prefer to have in the show so let's go back and look at what Colin Miller was doing at the start of last season he was the blue liner, getting the most power play minutes but those eventually as you mentioned Elon fell away as Miller yielded the first power play role to Shea Theodore but Miller still did produce well through the year seemed comfortable in a larger role than he'd ever had before seemed very capable of handling it could make his new contract seem like a bargain and yeah the second power play unit less powerful this year. So if he does not manage to nab a spot on the top unit, which, I mean, we'd guess he wouldn't, that will hurt him. Uh, But I still, for some reason, want to say he's going to get like 40 points, maybe 35 is a more reasonable estimate. The nice thing about him is that he does hit And he does take shots, about a couple of each per game. So if your league counts those categories, he can at least help you there, even if he's not going to get you quite as many points.
0: Okay, and let's just end our Vegas talk with Marc-Andre Fleury, who Vegas extended for three years, $7 million a year. So he's locked in for the next four years at big money. He's not a young guy. Seems like a bit risky. At the same time, Fleury had such an amazing year last year, a big reason why Vegas made it so far, though he did kind of choke right there at the end in Marc-Andre Fleury playoff fashion. Sorry, sorry. I know I shouldn't say that. That's very much simplifying a complex game. But Brian... What do you think about this Flurry extension? I have a feeling you're not going to like it. And also, I feel like by, I, before I, you answer, this can't be good for Malcolm Subban, right? If you had Malcolm Subban in a dynasty league and you were excited about his potential to eventually overtake Flurry, you're going to have to wait a long time now.
1: On one hand, you can say that any other Vegas goaltender's value is tanked. On the other, you could say, well, just because Flurry's being paid this much, does not guarantee he's going to be worth it and get the appropriate minutes. Remember, Marc-Andre Fleury is a guy who has a lot of miles on him. He's been playing for Pittsburgh since back before, like just when they were first getting the building blocks of what became like the Crosby, Malkin, Latang dynasty. Uh, we're going to call it a dynasty just for fun, okay? Nobody send us angry tweets about it. But he's been playing for the Penguins ever since then, playing big minutes, tons of games. And uh, this deal actually doesn't even start this year for him. It starts the year after this year. So he's going to be 35 when the deal kicks in. He's going to be getting paid $7 million as a 35, 36 and 37 year old is going to be ridiculously hard for him to live up to that money. And I don't know if that means he automatically gets to start. Like, what do you do if your $7 million goalie is garbage because he's a little old and a little broken? I think back to Elon. Um, I guess the the best comparable I can I can think of off the top of my head was Cristobal Huey. I think he got like six million with Chicago, and this was like I don't know eight or nine years ago. I'm coming up with this on off the top of my head, and they eventually like found a way to like loan him to Europe to get his contract off the books. So I, like, look, the same thing is not going to happen with Marc Andre Fleury. But I definitely I don't like paying any like I saw Connor Hellebuck signed for six million average. I'm like. Yeah, that's kind of a lot to pay a goalie. So paying Marc-Andre Fleury a goalie who's not as good and who is significantly older more than that really raises alarm bells for me.
0: Yeah, Brian, I know that if you don't like this contract, you must have loved Nashville, which did the opposite thing. Instead of extending Pekka Rene for three years and $70 million a year, they instead got UC Saros to sign a deal for $1.5 million a year. Who would you rather have three years from now? UC Saros at $1.5 million or Marc-Andre Fleury at $7 million? We norm- normally don't answer cap league questions, but I feel like here, like Nashville knows what they're doing, it seems.
1: Yeah, well, they do now. You say that they didn't extend Rene for another three years, which is great. Uh, Because they're just getting out of the back end of a contract that was six years of paying Rene $7 million. Of course, he was younger when the contract started than Fleury. Anyway, to to go back and answer your question, in the 2021 season, I would rather have UC Saros over Marc-Andre Fleury.
0: Yeah, especially for that big change of money. Hey, you can't blame Nashville, though. Uh, Pekka just won the Vesna Trophy last year. So obviously they knew what they were doing in signing that big contract. Hopefully they just won't
1: extend okay. it. No, I don't think that's true. <laughs> you, you know you can't say that. You're just trying to... Wait, well, I mean, Rine really? has been really good for them for the last few years. You can't say the end justifies the means.
0: Well, I'm just saying that you can't call the Nashville management dumb for having signed Rene to that contract when Rene performed and won the Vesna trophy right at the end of it and I knew good seasons before. I know he had a couple bad seasons in there also.
1: I didn't say they were dumb. I think the contract was a mistake. I think they're lucky it paid off as well as it did because the odds of a 35-year-old Pekka Rene winning the Vezna uh, in the second last year of his contract, that's definitely not what they signed him up for. Like, they added the term at the end of the contract so that he would be there for the first three years and accept their offer, not so that they could pay him this much and get value out of it on the tail end. Come yeah. on.
0: Okay, fine. Maybe I'm being a little results-oriented. <laughs> but, so, oh, Nashville got lucky. We'll see if Vegas could also get lucky. Doesn't sound like you think it'll happen. Okay, enough Vegas talk. Let's talk about the player who left Vegas that we haven't talked about yet because we talked about David Perron last week. Let's talk about James Neal, who goes from the Vegas second line over to the Calgary Flames. He signed a five-year deal for $5.75 million a year. And this came a couple weeks after Calgary swung a big trade where they sent Dougie Hamilton, Michael Furland, and a guy named Adam Fox to the Hurricanes for Noah Hannafin and Elias Lindholm. And for completion's sake, the Flames also signed Derek Ryan and Austin Zarnik. So they've been pretty busy themselves. And I want to start with the Calgary forwards. Then we'll go to the D. Then maybe we could jump to Carolina and analyze that trade. Okay. Starting with the Calgary forwards. I'm definitely happy we didn't do a deep dive into the Elias Lindholm For Dougie Hamilton and all the other players, trade like a couple weeks ago because we would have been probably saying, "Wow, what a great spot for Elias Lindholm! He's going to jump perfectly into that top line to play with Gaudreau and Monahan, and he'll be great." But then Calgary went ahead, signed James Neal. I've never seen a player's fantasy value go so high up and then so far down so quickly as Elias Lindholm's in the past few weeks. And now I guess we have to try to figure out what's going to happen with the Calgary top six, or maybe even the Calgary top nine, because it's really hard to project. Like with James Neal in the picture. I feel like there's going to be some competition for that third spot on the top line, especially since there's a quote, I saw a tweet where coach Bill Peters said that Matthew Kachuk might get a shot on the top line. He said, and I quote, I want to move some guys around in preseason. We play a lot of games and that's the time to do it. I want to see Chucky on the right side. there, his off wing. So we have potentially three players who could end up on the top line with Goudreau and Monahan in Kachuk, Elias Lindholm and James Neal. So Brian, this is obviously something we'll have to monitor during training camp and we'll bring it up as we're podcasting, but we got to talk about it now and do our best to try to project what we think is going to happen. I feel like James Neal is probably the front runner. They just signed him to big money and I'd imagine they didn't do that to put him on the third line and Neal, you know, he put up actually surprisingly pedestrian numbers last year on Vegas, considering how well his line mates did. He ended the year with 44 points in seven game so it's a 51 point pace back in the day james neal was a 58 point guy with nashville a couple years ago before he started to slow down he was a point per game guy way back in the day when he was on pittsburgh where he regularly lined up with evgeny malkin and played on the top power play so to me neal seems like the front runner for that top line probably the top power play on the flames and i guess that would leave kachuk with backland and maybe elias Lindholm, could bump like fro from the second line Uh, But anyways, let's focus on James Neal first. If he gets that line one spot, which I think I'd imagine he's the front runner for, though Matthew Kachuk would be interesting if he got there. But if Neal gets on the top line, should we expect him to get back to being the 60-plus point guy that he at least was or was close to back in Nashville?
1: No. I'm going to go with no. You always ask me such yes-no questions when I really have, like, a long thing to go through. Uh, So I'm going to go with no, and then we'll circle back and see if all my analysis actually adds up to that uh, comfortably and conveniently binary answer. Uh, when I was looking into what James Neal, you know, I sometimes I, I, I look on various websites and information sources to see what they're saying about these acquisitions and what to expect from these players. One headline I saw when looking uh, for info on the James Neal signing said, and I quote, James Neal brings goals, leadership, and the care factor. To the flame so if your league has care factor as a category you should have James Neal pretty high up on your draft list but let's assume that you just have the usual more tangible categories in that case think about how the soon-to-be 31 year old has been more or less in decline since the day he put on a Predators jersey in 2014 that was after James Neal was traded to the Predators uh, by the Penguins in exchange for Patrick Hornqvist. Neal had been a point-per-game guy as a Penguin uh, so of course it really wasn't much place to go but down for him so we can't hammer on him completely for going into decline Uh, but it's not like his individual stats have really held up since his pittsburgh days either Uh, his present even strength shot and shot attempt rates are pretty close to reflecting those of his early years in dallas and when james neal rose from a 40 point rookie to a 55 point sophomore and whatever comes after sophomore soft most that's when, uh, that's when things really ramped up, and now they're going back down to those pre softmost levels. And I'm not expecting much more than the 55 points that James Neal did manage in his sophomore season with similar underlying numbers. If James Neal does get there, it's going to be by playing on the top line with Gadrone Monaghan and being part of the solution to the Flames' power play woes from last year. On the whole, you can fairly expect somewhere around 25 goals from James Neal, and then hopefully... 25 30 assists with an outside chance, of course, that Neil can Yuri Hoodler his way to something more impressive than that.
0: Okay. I think that's fair. So you're saying probably closer to a 55 point guy, maybe upside for more just because of those amazing potential line mates. And if he could get on that top power play, but yeah, don't go crazy on him, especially since like we said, there's competition for that spot. So that brings us to Elias Lindholm, who we've considered to be a sleeper in the past. And he's always disappointed us. So I don't know. I don't think we're going to make that mistake again. News just came out today, by the way, that he signed a six year 4.85 contract. So obviously the flames are happy to have Elias Lindholm in the fold. He only had 44 points in 81 games last season, even though he spent a lot of time playing with Sebastian Aho, So let's say Elias Lindholm doesn't get on line one, but I'm going to say he bumps. I'm going to give him that I think he could bump Michael Froelich and at least get on the second line to play with Kachuk and Backlund. Let's say if that happens, you've got Elias Lindholm as a second line guy, probably second power play. Do you think in that scenario you could expect him to become at least a fantasy relevant player, someone who you could expect to break 50 points with some confidence?
1: Well, the thing with Lindholm is that it's really, I find it tougher to project where he's going to end up in the Calgary lineup, where I can assume that James Neal is going to be on the top line. Uh, Lindholm could conceivably slot in there also or he could fit in on the second line or even on the third line. There are a lot of pieces like Sam Bennett and Austin Charnik amongst them that the Flames are still trying to place along with all their new acquisitions like Lindholm, like Neil. But Elon, let's apply your cautious optimism and assume that Lindholm does slot in on the second line. Can he get more than 50 points there? I'm not sure there's been a bit of a bump that Lindholm has seen in his scoring rates over the last couple years. Although Tyler Dello over at The Athletic has ascribed that to some unsustainable shooting percentages coming from his line mates, which then begs the question, was Elias Lindholm helping his line mates to better shooting percentages? And the answer seems to be no, or at least that there's no evidence that he is actually contributing to being a better creator, being a better setup man helping his line mates score more goals on on a higher percentage of their shots. The thing I always make sure to remind everyone about Elias Lindholm is that he's still young. Uh, the 2018-19 campaign is going to see him turn 24 years old. So there is some room to grow, but we're also at the point where we've seen four years of 40 to 45 point hockey from him. And 24 is not the beginning of your development curve. It's It's quite a ways into the middle of your development curve. So at some point, we're going to have to apply the if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck rule to Elias Lindholm. Of course, the clear way for Lindholm to jump in points would be for him to find chemistry on the top line with Kadran Monahan, who, fun fact, Sean Monahan was drafted one pick after Elias Lindholm back in 2013. Uh if Lindholm can get on that top line, then sure, 60 points is within reach for him. Otherwise, he's got to show me something more before I get too confident that he is any better than a 45, maybe 50 point player.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you're saying probably you're not going to want to draft Elias Lindholm, but definitely someone who could be a 50 point guy, Watch him draft him late. Could be like a sleeper, but maybe don't expect too much. Yeah, I think it's going to be really tough for him to get those primo assignments that you need to put up like 55, 60 points. One guy who looks like he could be the one to get those assignments is Matthew Kachuk. So let's end with him. I think we could assume he's got the second line and hopefully the top power play already locked in. And now he has a shot to jump up and play with Goudreau and Monaghan. As I mentioned in that tweet from the coach earlier, he'll at least get a chance. So Matthew Kachuk, 49 points in 68 games last year. That's a 59 point pace. And if you only look at his second half, he was even better. He put up 25 points in 31 games to end the season for a 66-point pace. Plus, he was taking over three shots per game during that final span of the season. Of course, a big part of that was that he got onto the top power play. And I don't see why he won't stay there next year. So even if he stays on the second line of the top power play, we've seen that he could put up 65-plus point pace. Do you think that we should expect that to be his floor next year? You Can you see him being even higher if he gets on that top line? Like, how high is the limit for Matthew Kachuk after his amazing end of the year last season?
1: The limit might be lower than you think for Matthew Kachuk. 60-65 points should absolutely not be his floor. And before you just call me wet blanket, uh, it really was a great run that Matthew Kachuk had at the end of last season. And Elon, you did hit the nail somewhat on the head when saying where it came from. Kachuk had 12 power play points over the course of 30 games as part of that big run that launched him up to that crazy pace towards the end of the year. And those power play points started coming essentially immediately after his power play role increased and he got the promotion to the top unit. Many of those power play points came in the form of power play goals, nine to be exact. And while that's great, he might have been punching a bit above his weight there. Uh, Matthew Kachuk shot at a 19% conversion rate while potting 18 goals in all over 30 games towards the end of the season when he'd been shooting just 7.5% up until that point and just 9% the year before. So what I'm saying here is that I don't think Matthew Kachuk is the 19% shooter that he was over the last 30 games of last season. And so no, I don't expect his floor to be 60, 65 points. I don't think that's where you want to start and see where he progresses. I think that's where you hope he does progress too. So let's say that Matthew Kachuk is a 55-point guy, and it'd be great if he took the steps he needed to up his game, to improve, to grow, to get up to 60. 65 is really only a projection for Matthew Kachuk for the most optimistic amongst us.
0: Wow. Okay. So I won't call you wet blanket. Maybe you're right. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see how all the lines shake out. Okay, Brian, would you take Matthew Kachuk or James Neal? first in a draft next
1: year i'm gonna go with james neal even though it paint like i know i was like 55 points in hope for 60 with james neal and kachuk it sounded like i was higher on but it really is all about the power play role it's all about deployment which makes this part of the season so hard i just want to see them play 10 games where are you gonna put them i don't know i would rather
0: kachuk than james Neal. i think he's more likely to get that power play time wait a second
1: let's say james neal top line top power play
0: But James Neal wasn't even able to hold on to the top power play in Nashville all the time. Like, Kachuk just got there and he did so well. Do you mean Vegas? Well, actually, no, I did mean Nashville. But also, you're right. In Vegas, he also wasn't on the top power play.
1: Yeah, but maybe he'll be on the top power. Like, Calgary desperately needs the help on the power play. And I think what Kachuk did on the power play was fantastic. But I'm not sure that the shooting success he was seeing was sustainable there. How
0: about this, Brian? Goudreau, Monaghan,
1: Kachuk, Neal,
0: and a defenseman, probably Giordano. You got, him, you got them both there. Let's talk about the defenseman. All right, so fine. We have to, of course, mention that the Flames traded away Dougie Hamilton. They acquired Noah Hannafin in this deal, which also brought them Elias Lindholm, of course. So on the surface, to me, this seems like a pretty bad move, considering Dougie Hamilton really came into form in the second half of last season. He put up 28 points in 43 games to end the year. That's a 53-point pace in the second half. So he was heating up, doing great. Then they ship him off for Hannafin and Elias Lindholm. I don't know. I don't know. Like, uh, so Brian, maybe before we get to, I don't normally, we don't like dig too much into the trades in terms of what it did for the teams. But here, I just really am curious to get your take. Like, don't you think Calgary totally
1: got screwed? I think the Flames definitely got the short end of the stick here. I'm not sure what they were planning to do exactly. What they did was they traded Dougie Hamilton for a return that included players who they could only hope become Dougie Hamilton.
0: Yeah, I know that we were talking about how that apparently there was a quote that Hamilton would be, like, going to the museum while the rest of the players went out to party, and so he didn't fit in, and that's why they had to get rid of him. All right, if you want to manage your team that way, uh, do, your, uh, do your thing, Calgary Flames. But I have a feeling that next year, Dougie Hamilton is going to make them regret this, a la Taylor Hall and what he did to the Edmonton Oilers last season. But okay, let's talk about the Calgary D. Who's left there? So they get Noah Hannafin. He put up a career-high 32 points last year, in his third season with the Hurricanes, he was never able to steal the top power play job from Justin Falk, who we'll get to, by the way, later in the show, though Hannafin did still get a decent amount of time on the second power play unit, didn't do too much with it. Do you think there's any chance that Hannafin can take that top power play spot that Dougie Hamilton was occupying at the end of the season? And if he does, what do you think his upside could be? Can he break his career high of 32 points? And if not, like, what do you think is gonna happen with Noah Hannafin? If he's not on the top power play, does he even have any fantasy value to you?
1: Not a lot, no. And wondering whether Hannifin is going to get on the top unit. Think back to the start of last season when the Flames played TJ Brody inexplicably over Dougie Hamilton for half a season. Although maybe it is explicable now that we heard about Hamilton's museum visits, uh, and now that they've acquired Hannafin, they paid so much to get him. Maybe they're going to let that dictate. Ah, uh, here, here's a little push up the depth chart. How about you start that you're on the top power play unit, uh, but there isn't just Brody in the picture. There's also Mark Giordano. So it's not an obvious cakewalk for Hannafin to take on that top power play role to get that privilege, but it's certainly possible. Uh, We talked about him in the past as someone who had potential to displace Justin Falk in Carolina. Although I never thought that he was actually going to be capable of it, even though there were times where it seemed like he was breathing down Fox's net. So I think, Uh, Hannafin probably already equals a better top unit power play option than TJ Brody. The question is, is he better than Giordano?
0: And I feel like probably no. Just from what we've seen so far, I guess Hannafin hasn't been given a true shot. And obviously playing on top power play with Goudreau, Monaghan, Kachuk, and James Neal. Like I was saying, those would be a good group of players to play with. But I think I'd rather see Mark Giordano there. And I'd love to ask you about Giordano. At the start of the season, Brody was in the top power play spot. He did nothing with it. Giordano ended up taking over. He was a bit more productive. He still ended the year with only 38 points in 82 games. Is around 40 points the best we should be expecting from Giordano moving forward? That's what he's done lately. Or is there any chance he could get back to that amazing 56 points that he put up back in 2015-16? Like Giordano was a stud. I could see him being on this top power play unit, getting a lot of ice. time. He was still getting a ton of ice time last year, even when he wasn't on the top power play. I feel like there's room for more from Giordano, though I am aware that he's getting older. So what's your take on him for next year?
1: There seems to be room for more. The question is how much more? 56 points more? Uh, that may be too tall in order, but Giordano looking at his power play performance last year was pretty good. It wasn't peak Giordano, but we can't expect peak Giordano, but it's also not career is over Giordano it was still shot at a good amount, though he didn't have as many individual scoring chances as he usually puts together. And he was also snake bitten on his own shooting, which wasn't necessarily his own fault. He shot under 2% with the man advantage, which is very, very low. Uh, the power play unit as a whole was shooting poorly too while Giordano was on the ice. Again, uh, this was a Calgary wide problem. They were woeful with the man advantage last season. So Giordano suffered with the rest of them. And then looking at his even strength numbers, Giordano's offense generation uh, held up pretty well. And again, he was hampered by somewhat poor shooting of his line mates. So whatever his numbers ended up being last year, I'm not sure that was an accurate reflection of the offense that he was capable of contributing to and helping to generate. I'm happy to start Giordano at a floor of 40 points and then see him move up to maybe even 50 if he can hold that top power play quarterback role. As I said at the start, Elon, 56 points, maybe too tall in order. In the last 10 years, only a small group of defensemen Giordano's age have managed to score at that pace and some missed 20 games in those years. I mentioned Jordano's age. Did I say, Elon, how old is he? 36? 35. He's going to be 35 next year. Yes. So uh, guys who were in their age 35 or older season who managed to put up a 56 point pace, you're talking about Nick Lidstrom, Brian Falsky Sergey Gonshar, Scott Niedermeyer. And then before them, it was the likes of Sergei Zubov, Matthew Schneider, Brian Leach, Ray Bork, Al McInnes. So I wouldn't rule out definitively that Giordano can launch himself into that group with the right deployment, but he will absolutely need the right deployment and some bounces to get there. I like him in the high 40s if he does manage to lock up that top power play quarterback role. If not, I like him for at least 40 anyway. You know what, Brian? I'm going to
0: take it. I don't need him to get me 56 points next year. If you're saying that there's a good chance he could get high 40s, I would call that sleeper alert. Sleeper alert for Mark Giordano, just like Ryan Nugent Hopkins. I was saying before, I think a guy who got uh, 38 (laughs) points last year. I think we need a bigger horn. For. 38-point Mark Giordano. He's not going to get drafted too high in drafts. And if you're saying he could be high 40s, that could be huge. I like him for next year. We'll see what happens. But Brian, I know you're really hot in there. So let's get away from the heat of the Calgary Flames and let's go over to the nice, cool Hurricanes. They're blowing that wind all over. Maybe I should be minimizing the effects of a hurricane. They probably do a lot more than cool you down. Brian, I want to talk about Justin Falk, who finally has a challenge on that top power play. Like you said, you never were too worried about Hannafin taking that job. But Are you worried about Dougie Hamilton? Like I said, Hamilton ended last season with 44 points and was producing at a 53-point clip once 2018 started. Meanwhile, Fogg had another disappointing season, putting up only 31 points in 76 games, a far cry from his career high of 49 points back in 2014-15. So should we assume that it's almost assured that Dougie Hamilton will bump Justin Fogg from the top power play next season? And if that's the case, do you think Hamilton will put up the 50-plus points that we were expecting him to be capable of in Calgary?
1: So here we are. I've long said that Justin Falk is a qualified and legitimate power play one quarterback in Carolina, and they have no one to challenge him and he should hold that role. I've also said that Dougie Hamilton in Calgary should be the power play one quarterback for many of the same reasons. Great shot, well, better shot generation. And so here we are, they're both in the same place. I can't choose both of them. And you know, I've long advocated for Falk to hold his spot on the top power play, even when challenged by someone like Hannafin. But I think the only reason that Falk might, quote-unquote, deserve to begin on the top unit in Carolina with Hamilton in the picture now is that Falk was there first. But that's not a very good reason. I'd expect Carolina to experiment a bit at the start of the year. Remember, they've got a new coach, Rod Brindamore, as well. So I don't know what direction he's going to want to take it. But we'll see how those experiments go in the early season and who emerges as the top power play quarterback. I could see again in Carolina having like two reasonably equal units and each of those guys getting to quarterback one of them and watch which one emerges. Of course, whoever's playing with Sebastian Aho is the one that you're really hoping uh, gives you that bump in fantasy production. Uh, they're both capable of having the spots. If I'm thinking about drafting either one, which I know is really what you want me to answer, I probably prefer Dougie Hamilton over Falk he's someone who can be a little more talented but also has seen more even strength success in the past than Justin Falk Hamilton will also hopefully continue to offer that sweet sweet shot volume that he does and if that happens I'm not sure what you can count on from Justin Falk like if he is on a definitive second power play unit I'm not sure Uh, He had just 31 points last year, 19 of which came on the power play. So I mentioned Dougie Hamilton's, like we talked about him last year and the year before. Look at all the points he's scoring, even though he's not getting power play time and he's doing it all at even strength. Justin Falk, in the meanwhile is doing nothing at even strength, just 12 even strength points last year, uh, I think he can bounce back from it. I'm talking about Justin Falk now, but even if Falk does bounce back from it, he's going to have considerably fewer power play points to boost his totals. So let's say 35 points is a safe bet for a reasonably talented offensive defensemen who may be running the second unit. Elon, no, right. this is an interesting no. one because I was happy to go with 40 points for Colin Miller, and here I am seeing 35 points for Justin Falk. Do you, does that sound right to you? Well, first of all, I feel like you're spending a lot
0: of time maybe too much time considering whether or not hamilton's on the top power play or falk's on the top power play i feel like it's almost for sure that dougie hamilton takes that job considering how terrible justin falk has been i thought you were gonna say yeah hamilton top power play no question falk yeah probably around 35 points i think that's correct that might even be high considering how well he did last year and he was on the top power play i feel like i'm more curious even to know how high you think dougie hamilton's gonna go that's the number i really care about 50 50, I agree, maybe more. And Colin Miller, 40 points is probably a bit high considering, again, I know this is the Power Play show. Maybe every episode is the Power Play episode. But hey, guys, I got a secret for you. If you want to be successful at fantasy hockey, you probably want to get the guys playing on the Power Play. They get a lot of goals there. So, okay, Colin Miller is going to get less Power Play time next year, probably, and probably Justin Falk is going to suck, and probably Dougie Hamilton is going to get (laughs) 50 plus points. So I don't know. Give me uh, 35 points for both Colin Miller and Justin Falk. I think it would be a fun bet to try to guess who's going to get more.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm going to downgrade. I was just sort of like giving Miller an extra bonus for being a Golden Knight, the way that I, you know, gave every Golden Knight uh, the opposite of a bonus at the start of last season. I'm trying, I'm overcorrecting, I think.
0: Maybe. But again, someone's going to have to score Uh, on Vegas. I think you said every single player on Vegas is not worth drafting, (laughs) aside from Paul Stasny. (laughs) The the top line. line
1: and Shea Theodore and Paul Stasny.
0: Okay, so we're
1: on Carolina
0: now. We talked enough (laughs) about Vegas. And who else do we even have to talk about on Carolina? Oh, yeah. The other big news out of Carolina... That happened during the offseason. I guess aside from drafting Sveshnikov, that was obviously a big thing, and he might come in and, like Cam Robinson said a couple episodes ago, he might be a guy that can score 30 goals in his first season. Then we have Martin Nekash doing well in development camp, so he could come in. The other big thing Carolina did is they signed Peter Morozik to a one-year deal for $1. $1.5 million. Peter Morozik's going to make the same amount of money as UC Saros next year. Imagine that. So, okay, so Murazik is brought in to challenge Scott Darling for the number one goalie job Brian, you tweeted that you liked this move. I responded that I agreed and it was a great move by Peter Mrazik's agent to be able to get an NHL contract considering how well he's been doing lately, which is not very well at all. But of course, Carolina did need to do something about their goalie situation, which has been a huge problem for so many years now. They've got so much firepower, just added Hamilton, but it may all be for nothing if Morazic or Darling don't figure out how to stop a puck Last year, of course, was a disaster for Merazic He sucked in Detroit. It was even worse when he got to Philly. He had an 8.91 save percentage in 17 games for Philly. This was after putting up a sad 9.01 save percentage in 2016-17 with the Red Wings. Of course, there was a time, not too, too long ago, where Petr Morazic was a decent goalie and was doing well in fantasy. A couple of years back... In Detroit, Mrazik had a 918 save percentage and then a 921 save percentage in 2014-15, 2015-16, before he flamed out and Jimmy Howard stole the job back. So now we get a new, fresh start for Peter Mrazik. He definitely should be given a shot, I think, considering how weak Scott Darling was last season. He himself had an 888 save percentage in 43 games. So, Brian, how are you expecting things to shake out? Who would you draft first if you wanted a Carolina goalie? Neither. It's just so crazy, right? Because Carolina seems to be doing everything right. They just got Dougie Hamilton. They're bringing in Svechnikov. They have all like they look
1: like they could be such a good team. And, and we're saying we don't want either of their goalies. And how many years have we said this for? I mean, the, the running joke is that every offseason, oh Carolina, what they're doing looks great. Oh, that's interesting. Looks like they're building a team the right way. And then they're just submarined by their goalie year after year yeah. after year. Now we know that goalie's not going to be Cam Ward. But now we're wondering, is it going to be Marazic or Darling who submarines them? Neither guy looks great. I think the more interesting question would be, you know, with Carolina once again looking poised to move up the standings after a smart off season, is this a handcuff? Mirazik and Darling, do you want this handcuff to try and add at... Like great value, right? No one's going to be rushing for these guys. So maybe you can cuff these guys later on in your draft, especially if you get one of them. I doubt anyone's going for the other. Uh, we've shared our, th- our general thoughts on handcuffs before, uh, which is that it's best to avoid them. But if you're in a situation where you think it might benefit you, uh, maybe? Although again, this could be an awful handcuff to own, but you could essentially, what you'd be doing is be hedging your bets grab both if you think one will emerge, and then just jettison the guy who doesn't. I think it's just as likely, if not more so, that they go back and forth all season long, and it's not going to be an option for you to grab both and then let one go. I feel like you're going to own them both all year long, or they're just going to be popping in and out of your free agent pile. If I have to pick one I'm going to count on, I'm going to lean... Ugh. You know, I saw, like, I was looking, uh, doing some research, and I saw like, on, uh, I think it was the Dauber forums, it was not sourced, but we already have talk of Scott Darling coming to camp in great shape in September and how he came in overweight last Uh. season. So he's going to, no, but this is like, remember Skinny Ovi? Yeah, Skinny Ovi got a point (laughs) per game last year. And the Stanley Cup, but it's all a myth. It's I, like, usually when you see that's just like, you know, check that off on your bingo card about guys who struggled one season. Oh, suddenly they're coming back to camp in better shape than ever. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it matters. Sometimes it doesn't. I feel, I honestly feel like Peter Morazic is not a great goalie. I feel like he's a better goalie than Scott Darling. But Scott Darling is the goalie that the Hurricanes have invested in. So like, there's this tension here and Morazic isn't going to blow anyone out of the water with the way he's been playing lately. So, uh, oh, this is, it's awful. I don't know. Who, who would you pick?
0: I think I would pick Scott Darling. I feel like Peter Mrazek really just has been so terrible. And I know Darling was terrible last year. And I know it's hard. That's why you were just going on and off about I'm going not sure to yourself. I'm going Darling. But I don't want to bet on it. I don't really care. They should figure out a way to get some other goalie. But who knows? It could maybe work out. Uh anyways yeah so the thing is that Carolina we didn't even mention one of the other great things they did they signed Calvin DeHaan who's supposed to be a really good defensive defenseman they signed him to a 4 year 18.2 million dollar contract maybe he'll make life a little easier for the goaltenders like Carolina's doing everything they can to try their help to help their goalies be able to win some games I do like the idea, Brian, of getting the handcuff here. And I know, like you said, we generally talk about how it's not too useful. When, I, when, I, when we usually talk about handcuffs, people be, are like, oh, should I grab the handcuff or try to get like two starting goals? Like, I'd rather take the chance at getting two goalies who can maybe give you more starts overall. Like maybe if you got Darling, maybe I'd rather that, like I wouldn't then like raise the value of Peter Mrazek just because I already have Darling, Like if I could get, for example, like a UC Saros, who I feel like, let's say if I really strongly feel that Saros is going to get a lot of starts next year for Nashville, and I think he's going to do better than Darling, like why would I want to just draft the other one just because I already have one? So that's kind of where that goes, but I do like the idea of, Brian, if you get very late in the draft, like your last couple of picks, grab Darling and Morazic, hope that one of them earns the job within a couple of weeks into the season, then you drop the other goalie, then you turn out you have a starting goalie that you got in the last round of a pool. So I think there is some interesting strategy there. I'd love I would just love for one of these guys to do something and make Carolina a good team because I feel like they deserve it. They're making smart decisions. As far as Calvin DeHaan goes, like there's nothing to say about him, right? Like it's not fantasy relevant. He's just like a good player for a team to have.
1: Yeah, exactly. So whoever is playing goalie for Carolina will benefit from his presence on the ice. And hopefully that will be enough to get them up to, I don't know, at least 900 save percentage. All
0: right, so let's move on from Carolina now. We've discussed that the Dougie Hamilton trade may have been a bit lopsided and perhaps off-ice reputation may have played a bit of a role in the player valuation that went into the thinking for that trade. But that trade has nothing on the next one I'd like to discuss, which is where the Ottawa Senators traded Mike Hoffman, a prospect, and a fifth-round pick to the San Jose Sharks for Michael Bodker, a prospect, and a sixth-round pick. So Ottawa downgraded a pick and got Michael Bodker in order to offload Mike Hoffman, like former like consistent 60 point, mike hoffman for nothing but hey and then the sharks made the sense look really dumb because then they turned around and they sent hoffman and a seventh pick to florida for a second and a fourth round pick and apparently ottawa didn't even want to trade with florida because they were in the same division but hoffman goes to florida anyways and they get a worse return oh my god the Sens. and i know brian and i like don't generally want to give you the platform to complain about Sens management because i know we could do a whole show about it but here i have no choice because obviously this is a fantasy relevant trade because the florida panthers end up with mike hoffman and he's gonna really look nice in that top six for florida like at the end of the day now look at this top six they could have like barkov Bugstad, and dadanov on line one and then trochek with huber doe and hoffman on the second line Those are two amazing lines to be able to trot out there. So let's get into all of this. Like I said, Hoffman has hovered around the 60-point mark for the last three seasons, putting up 59 in 2015-16. Then he had 61 points in 2016-17, 56 points last year. Of course, those 2016-17 numbers were even better since he had 61 points in only 74 games. So if he played the whole season, that's a 68-point pace. So we've seen near 70-point upside from Mike Hoffman. And now he goes to a Florida team where he could potentially have better line mates and maybe the top power play? That's, of course, the big question, right? Of whether or not Hoffman can bump someone and get on that top power play unit. Last year, we were seeing Barkov, Huberdo, Trocheck, and Dadanov, along with a defenseman, usually Keith Yandel, on that top unit. So Hoffman would have to bump one of those guys. I'd imagine it would most likely be Dadanov. So Brian, what do you think about Mike Hoffman on the Florida Panthers? Does his fantasy value go up? Is he helped? Is he hurt? Is he unaffected? And what does this mean for the other guys, like Dadanov, who, if he gets bumped from the top, power play that's obviously not good for him so what's your take overall on this new situation in florida with all of these amazing forwards they have in the top six
1: i think this hurts mike hoffman i've always been a fan of mike hoffman's game we've been able to count on him for three shots per game, about 25 goals, close to 60 points. But as you said, Elon, there's a pretty reasonable chance that Hoffman does not get top power play billing with the Panthers uh, already full up on their top unit with Barkov, Huberto, Dadanov, and Trocek. So maybe Hoffman is the odd man out. We'll have to see whether that actually is true. But if it is, it's cause for concern. Take note that 30 of Hoffman's 77 goals over the last three seasons came on the power play, which says two things. One, Hoffman is a great finisher to have on the power play. Why wouldn't the Panthers want him on their top unit or any team in the league for that matter? Two, Hoffman averages about 15 even strength goals per year once you take away his 30 power play goals. So if the power play time does go missing, then maybe Hoffman's a 20-goal guy rather than a 25-goal guy. I figure Dadanov is the one who most likely gets bumped if Hoffman does get placed to the top unit, which of course would make Hoffman, let's say, unaffected, and that would hurt Dadanov. Dadanov, if you're looking for someone to bump off the Panthers top unit, he's probably the guy. He was the least productive of the top power play group only 13 power play points despite playing on the top unit for much of the year, which on the bright side means that Dadanov could be good enough at even strength to absorb much of the impact of losing his spot on the top power play unit. So I like him for that reason. Like Hoffman, I'm a little more concerned if he loses power play deployment. Dadinov, I, I could be a, a little better positioned to survive the loss of that extra opportunity.
0: So who would you rather have in fantasy next year? Like who would you draft first between Hoffman and Dadanov
1: So, I feel like it depends on what swing I want to take. I like Dadanov because I'm less worried about what role he plays, thinking that he's going to do fine regardless. Uh, He's got the steadier floor. But, of course, Hoffman would be the bigger swing to take as a guy with more upside, uh, but also seemingly more to lose by not being on the top unit. So if Hoffman does get on that top unit, I, of course, like him more than Dadanov next year. But if I don't feel like taking that risk and wanting to place that bet, I'll go with Dadinov instead.
0: Okay, so it sounds like you're saying like there's reasons to go with either of them. But in either case, what are we looking at here? Like a potential like 60, 65 point guy?
1: Yeah, Hoffman, 60 points if on the top unit. If not, subtract, you know, six, seven points, maybe. Dadinov, I feel more comfortable with him staying closer to 60, whether on or off the top unit. Maybe 65 if he stays on it all year.
0: Okay, fair enough. All right, let's go over to the Sens now. I'd rather not spend too much time here since we'll probably be doing a deeper dive into the team if and when they trade Eric Carlson. LeBron, I saw you mentioning on our Facebook group earlier today that maybe he'll stay on the least to start the season. So maybe we won't have a chance to talk about them too much aside from now. So how do you see the departure of Mike Hoffman affecting the rest of the team? They still have two prime star forwards in Mark Stone and Matt DeShane who will have to figure out a way to put up points with guys like Ryan Dezingle, Pajot, maybe Bobby Ryan. Oh yeah, they just traded for Michael Bodker. So hey hey, he got 37 points in 74 games with the Sharks last season. So almost a half point per game guy. So are you concerned at all about Stone and Duchesne being able to put up points with Hoffman out of the picture and Eric Carlson likely to follow? Or would you still draft those two guys confidently?
1: The latest I've heard, and this is more trade speculation, but maybe Eric Carlson does begin the year in Ottawa. Things haven't like gone well in the summer with trading him. Uh, that would be great news for Mark Stone and Matt Duchesne. Even if Carlson doesn't start the year in Ottawa or leaves part the way through, I still do like Mark Stone and Matt Duchesne. I don't think their value tanks all of a sudden without Carlson. They've both proven themselves to be quite good in their own right. Of course, it would be really helpful, like say Carlson were to leave, uh, if then a guy like Thomas Shabbat stepped up and proved himself somewhat capable of exiting his own zone and quarterbacking the power play. Uh, the power play is, of course, where Ottawa and its scores are really going to miss Eric Carlson. But I'm still drafting Stone and Duchesne with reasonable confidence to be 60-point players With upside beyond that, Uh, Duchesne's upside probably higher than Mark Stone's, but Stone's value, of course, is a right winger, potentially being harder to replace in drafts than Matt Duchesne. At least they still have each other regardless.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at least for a little while. I'm sure Matt Duchesne would love for that to change. I still think it's very interesting that the Sens are talking about how they're going to be trading Eric Carlson for sure, because he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. But Matt Duchesne, they seem very happy to lose him to free agency at the end of next season, because why would Matt Duchesne stay there? But hey, let's not spend too much time trying to figure out what the Sens management is doing let's take one more look at the Sens because aside from Stone and Duchesne, I'm curious. So, is there any other forward that you'd even want to draft? Like, who is the third Sens forward to draft on this team? Like, someone is going to be getting time with Stone and Duchesne on the top power play and at even strength. So, who do you think that player is going to be that you would potentially want to draft on the Sens? Is it Ryan DeZingle who had 41 points last year? Not so bad, he'll probably get the top power play. Is it Bodker now? Does he jump up to being the third most
1: valuable Sen? Maybe, uh. I don't even know, Brian. Like, give me a name. Is there anyone on the Sens you like? Uh, Ryan Dezingle would probably be the safest guy to go with if you want to go for another Sens forward. Bobby Ryan's still in the picture, still a reasonably serviceable top six forward. I know his inconsistencies have made a lot of his owners crazy over the last couple of years, and he's no longer a must-own, but maybe he's still uh, in the running for the third best senator forward to own. Uh, the dark horse in this conversation is Colin White, who could be centering the second line. And if he has a big rookie season, he could easily position himself as the third most valuable Senators forward by year's end.
0: Okay, so he's someone to watch. I noticed you didn't even mention Mikhail Bodker. I guess you're not into him? No. All right, Brian, let's end the show with one more big signing that I want to cover. And then maybe we can cover the rest of the smaller moves on the next show. Because, yeah, there still are more things. that I can't go to shows without discussing Ilya Kovalchuk signing with the LA Kings. He signed a three-year deal for $6.25 million. We actually went in-depth on him on our last patron cast. But this is the first time the rest of the world gets to hear your take on Ilya Kovalchuk coming back to the NHL. So we all know his story. He was a top player in the league, routinely putting up greater than a point per game with the Thrashers and then the Devils. In fact, he's currently at exactly 816 points in 816 NHL games on his career, so taking a big risk coming back to the NHL and ruining his chance to be a point-per-game guy and to retire that way, but you know what? He's got to do it because he's going to make a lot of money. Like I said, $6.25 million per year. So in 2012-13, Kovalchuk left the Devils and jumped to Ska St. Petersburg of the KHL, and he thrived there as well. He put up similar numbers as what he was doing in the NHL last year as a... 35 year old kovalchuk scored 31 goals and 32 assists for 63 points in 53 games again as a 35 year old he was well above a point per game by the way he's a 35 year old i'm a 35 year old look at that we were born in the same year and how many points can you score in the nhl well, I hope that I'm not washed up, and I don't think I am, and I also don't think that Ilya Kovalchuk is washed up. I think the Kings obviously hope that he's not, and I have a feeling they're going to bring him in, and I don't think this is a bold prediction that Kovalchuk's going to join the team. He's going to join Anja Kopitar, probably Dustin Brown or who knows who else, but like, he's going to be with Kopitar on the top line and the top power play. I feel like I'm higher on Kovalchuk than most. Like, I got him at 110th overall in the slow draft we've been doing with some of the patrons over the summer And I actually left my vote on Kovalchuk. Another thing we're doing with the patrons is every day we're doing a ranking of players on our Facebook group. We vote for a new player every day. And I voted Kovalchuk like a couple weeks ago, it felt like. And he only just got ranked. It was like up to 71 when I was preparing for this episode. In fact, linemate Jeff Carter went at 71st overall in our ranking. And Ilya Kovalchuk hadn't been ranked yet. Anyways, I'm higher on him than you. As for our debate of the last Patriot cast, I kind of see Kovalchuk as having like a 60 point floor and a solid potential for 70 points on the top line and top power play with Kopitar, I know you disagree with me, Brian. You're leaving me alone on hashtag team Kovalchuk. So let me hear your opinion on the player. I know I've given it away now. What do you think about Kovalchuk? What kind of production are you expecting next season?
1: I'm actually getting closer to joining you on hashtag team Kovalchuk. Part of me just doesn't want to fight with you on absolutely everything. And part of me is thinking, well, hey, if he is on the top line and he is on the top power play, yes, he's 35 years old, but it's not unheard of. For a 35-year-old, especially an elite talent 35-year-old, being able to produce at a 60-point pace or more in today's NHL uh, since, the last, since the last lockout, so since 2013-14, there have been 14 players who have managed a 60-point pace in at least 60 games played while being aged 35 or older. And you look at the list. Last season, nobody did it. The season before, it was Zetterberg only, so only one guy in the last two years, but then you look before that, there were 13 guys in the three years before that, which makes five years. So I'm saying in the last five years. Okay, Yager, Sedin, Thornton, Datsuk, uh, the other Sedin, Hosa, uh, Hosa, Thornton, they did it a couple times. Ikinla, St. Louis, Patrick Elias, Like these guys all did it. And it makes you think Ilya Kovalchuk would fit in that group. So why not? I'm going with 60 points, Elon. I know we had a bet before where you said over under 60 I took the under I scoffed at you while taking the under I've come around a little bit I want to ask if you will renegotiate that to make it an over under 65 and I will take the under Uh, why
0: would I read what are you offering me here why would I do that
1: well I'm saying I'm 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 backing out of the bet. I've changed my mind but I'm offering you a new term
0: well no I'll just keep the original bet and win well
1: no the bet is over
0: Oh, you're allowed to do that? Is this like Kramer when he said he was going to make his apartment into levels with pillows and then Jerry bet him on it? Then afterwards, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. So the bet's off. And I was like, that was the bet. That's it. We have a bet. But okay, fine. I still think he's going to get higher than 65. I'm predicting 70 point Kovalchuk. So sure, I'll take the new bet. But I'd like to also still have the old bet so I could get a double win.
1: You don't have the old bet
0: how does this work? what does betting mean to you hey we don't have time for this we got to move on so aside from
1: Ilya Cohen, well, what you want you want me to just be married to something i said like three weeks ago that i've had more time to think about and consider well i mean you didn't like thoughts change opinions change
0: okay but no one forced you to accept a bet you
1: can you can change any of the bets you made if you if you don't believe in your side of any of our bets uh, i encourage you to tell me
0: Okay, so I'll, I'll
1: think about that. But it has that. to be before something, you know, like before the ball is rolling on them. Like Kramer had a chance to to do the levels and he didn't do it. <laughs> all but right. Kowalczyk hasn't played a game yet. I didn't realize all of these bets that
0: we make are like only up until the point where games start. Before then, you could just get out of any bet you want. But sure.
1: Elon, part of it is you want me to have to defend my side, but I have no interest <laughs> in defending my side that I don't believe in anymore. That's fair. So, I... Does that mean you win? Do you want to win on default yeah. on that bet? Yeah. And then we, we've we created this new one.
0: Okay. <laughs> this is. I hope this is good content for people. Uh, this is what our... it's
1: like to be friends with Elon.
0: So if you buy our audio guide you're gonna get 20 plus hours of me and brian arguing about every player in the league just like this so if you want to get that in your ear on your way to work for all of september then you know that's an option for you keepingcarlsoncom slash guide so let's move on we both like kovalchuk for next year great how about the rest of the Kings, because if Ilya Kovalchuk occupies a spot on the top line of the top power play, someone's got to get bumped, and so the Kings shuffled their lines around a bunch last season. They even had a guy, Alex Ayrafalo, on the top line for a lot of the year. Seems to me like it's a clear top six now. You got Brown, Kopitar, Kovalchuk, and then Carter, Toffoli, Tanner Pearson. That, to me, seems like what we should expect for the LA top six, and then every other forward becomes... Fantasy irrelevant until at least someone gets injured. Do you agree? Or is there any other L.A. forward, like maybe Adrian Kempe? Is there someone that you can see as a sleeper to
1: have some value for the Kings? Uh, no. No, I think you, you've you essentially nailed the top six there. I'm not looking at anybody else to, to weasel their way in there. Unless, of course, Kovalchuk has lost several steps, which, according to how he performed in the KHL last season, he hasn't.
0: Yeah, like I guess that like Tyler Toffoli was in the bottom six for a lot of last year, though there was a lot of stuff going on. Like Jeff Carter was injured. Like, I feel like Adrian Campe seems like he could be good. I I feel like Tanner Pearson, like, it's Tanner Pearson, right? So, like, maybe there's a chance, but probably not someone that you need to draft. Maybe you could, like, have some people on your watch list. Then on the power play, they often went, I'm talking about the Kings here, they often went with both Muzzin and Dowdy there. So there were only three forward spots available, and they usually went to Kopitar, Carter, and Brown once Carter was healthy. So I feel like, A, Kovalchuk's arrival can't be great for a guy like Dustin Brown if the Kings go with three forwards on the top power play I'd imagine they're going to have to be Carter Kopitar and Kovalchuk so that bumps Dustin Brown's value a little bit and Brown had such a good year last year at 61 points overall 16 of them were on the power play and also I feel like this can't be too great for Tyler Toffoli who at one point we assumed was destined to be on the LA Kings top power play at some point but now there's yet another obstacle in his way that to have to overcome to get there kind of reminds me when we were talking about Philly in our last episode and we Talk about how Nolan Patrick, like we were first saying, oh, wait, maybe Wayne Simmons is hurt from JVR going there. And then also Nolan Patrick has yet another guy that has to, you know, he has to pass in order to get to the top power place. Yeah, it's going to be tough for Tyler foley So I feel like both of these guys' fantasy value have gone down a bit in Dustin Brown and Tyler foley Do you concur? Do you see Dustin Brown going down from his 61 points last year? foley only had 47 points last year. He can't go further down than that.
1: I concur generally with you, Elon, that of course it does not help them to have another person ahead of them on the depth chart, blocking them from getting time on the top power play unit. Dustin Brown, I don't expect him to go up or even hold his 61 points from last year. Uh, He's been in decline for a little while now. Uh, The exception last year was that he had high shooting percentage, high on ice shooting percentage. Even if he does play with two quality, even strength line mates, I don't think uh, he's going to need more luck to break his way to get 60 points again. And I'm not counting on it as for Tyler Toffoli. He's an interesting one at uh, two straight years of producing at essentially a 45 point pace. Now, of course last year he missed Jeff Carter, For a lot of it, Uh, a healthy Jeff Carter should be helpful, meaning that Toffoli is going to get to play with either Kopitar or Carter throughout the whole season. And Toffoli also seems like he's doing most of what he needs to do to be successful. Uh, So it's kind of gotten to the point with Toffoli where maybe uh, we start to wonder... His 58-point season a couple of years back, that wasn't a hinted upside. Maybe that was a career-high watermark for Tyler Foley. I've always personally thought better of him. But that year, he had an unsustainably high shooting percentage. And everything else looks about even from year to year outside that, from 58-point year to 45-point year. So I'm not going to go... Like, I used to like Foley for maybe 55-point upside. This year, I'm capping him at 50, which, of course, means this will be the year he breaks 60.
0: Okay, so you're not saying sleeper alert for Tyler Toffoli. So we're not going to have this sound going when we talk about him in our guide. And okay, so
1: that is the- why? <laughs> Because we don't call him a sleeper. That's the sleeper buzzer. No, I mean, why play the sound that we're not going to be hearing?
0: Well, because I was very excited to use it again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right,
0: that's all we got for you this week. I hope you enjoyed another ad-free summer episode. I say ad-free, of course, not including our own personal ad, which is for our first ever audio fantasy guide, which we plan to record at the end of august and release in time for you to go into your drafts listen to all throughout september leading up to your drafts i'm really excited about this again though if you don't want to do it it's cool also like it's not going to hurt our feelings if, if i have that extra week in august maybe i'll still take a week off maybe i'll go on a vacation somewhere maybe I'll, I'll treat myself but if you guys want me to stay at home in my apartment and record a guide where brian and i are going to all week talk about every single fantasy relevant player that's just one week of recording we're gonna to have to do probably another week or so of research and preparation to make this happen happen. so we're ready to do it if you're ready to listen to it check it out keepingcarlson.com slash guide brian do you want to say anything else before i ramble and ramble
1: to end the show no that's it help us make it happen
0: okay so we have a twitter account at keeping carlson brian tweeted an image of his attempt to cool down his computer right before we recorded it's his computer on top of like a baking tray filled with ice i can't imagine that was a successful it did not work okay but you can see Great things like that, and also some fun, fancy hockey takes from us on Twitter. So you can follow us at Keeping Carlson. Also, we'd love your feedback. You know, tweet at us if you listen to the show and you like it. Believe it or not, we make these shows. I don't really hear much about it afterwards. I think I hope people liked it. I don't know. So if you liked it, let us know at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. Uh, if you really like the show and you haven't done it yet oh man would we appreciate a five-star review on itunes that would be amazing because that's a great way to help other people find the show and i know some of you out there don't want to even tell your friends about the show which isn't very nice but i understand because you're like oh i don't want to give them an edge in my fantasy league so fine don't tell your friends at least give us a five-star review on itunes but okay with that brian how about we cue the outro music and then you can go ahead and read us the credits
1: Alright, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Corsica, Natural Stat Trick, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, The Athletic, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Fantracts.
0: Great job as always, Brian. And this is the preview. Here's some things we still haven't talked about that we're going to get to in our next episode, I guess. We had like John Carlson signed with the Capitals, like Bernier and Vanek went to the Whigs, and Shushkin to Dallas, Cam Warden to Chicago, and Chris Kunitz Cardovan to Dallas. Like, trust me, guys, I've written this all down. The Blackhawks traded away Marion Hossa's contract <laughs> along with Hinostroza and Osterleeds, Arizona. We'll get to that in the summer. Ryan's favorite goalie, Steve Mason, got bought out by the Winnipeg Jets. He hasn't been signed by anyone yet. We'll find out. It's
1: okay. All of that still to come. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple weeks. Until then, keep on keeping Carlson. son.
0: Jay Weber out five to six months. Okay. Bye, everyone.